working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey, everybody. This is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast, Working Drummer. Today, I'm very excited to bring you my interview with legendary drummer, Eddie Bayers. Eddie is a first-call session drummer and certainly one of the busiest musicians in the world. He's played on hundreds of gold and platinum albums and numerous movie soundtracks. He's received the Academy of Country Music Drummer of the Year Award 14 times. He was put into the honor roll for Modern Drummer Magazine for winning the Reader's Poll five years consecutively, and Drum Magazine named Eddie one of the top 10 session drummers of all time. As always, you can go to workingdrummer.net to find out more about this podcast, see pictures, and find out information about other podcasts we've recorded. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Go to iTunes where you can subscribe to this podcast. While you're in iTunes, leave a comment, rate the podcast. That really helps us out. When you use Instagram, use the hashtag Working Drummer. We'll mix that into our social media uh, and share those pictures and comments. So enough of my yakking. Let's get to this conversation with Eddie Bears. A demo, a portfolio, whatever you want to call a resume, it doesn't work. It's all about who you know, who know you. And in most cases, if it is a live scenario, most of the other guys in that band know somebody. And they will be accorded first. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It used to be management would do that, but but now the artist depends more on their band that's in place yeah. to trust them because they're going to be the ones who are going to be more sensitive to the chemistry mm-hmm. and know that somebody fits in their pocket, you know, yeah, yeah. and that's important. Right. So when all that traveling and all that time you spend together has to be. Oh, yeah. You have to be able to get along. Well, the other thing to be said is that they're there. The artist likes them. Yep calls that their band and Mm -hmm. so anything else that has to be replaced they pretty much depend on the auditions being governed by the musicians Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. of course the artist needs to come in but the artist is so comfortable with that band that they trust them yeah 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 you know yeah and it's interesting because we've we've discussed this uh, off and on uh, over time just that personality being able to get along uh Playing your abilities as a player being a factor, yeah, but not being the the thing. Um, but as a studio musician, how does that play? How does that come into play? Because a lot of times, personality is important, but sometimes you're not always together tracking together. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of that deals with if somebody new comes in, mm-hmm. uh, one of us know of them we've heard of them some of our people that we know and the other facets of Mm -hmm. you know guitar piano stuff like that they're always squawking they go man they had this kid on the blah 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 and he's really incredible yeah now with me and i'm sure you would realize too that that works to the fact that i know but when it gets down to the end of that list from production coordinators yeah then you might have the opportunity to go, have you tried da-da-da-da? But because in most cases, whoever we are on that list, they will go through first. There might be five or six of us. Right, Like right. if I can't do it or if somebody else couldn't do it, they would call me. Yeah. 
and adverse, obviously, if I can't do it, they'll call somebody else. And if he can't do it, then they'll just go down their list. They'll go down their list. Usually somebody yeah. is there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for somebody else to come in, it would have to be something where that person met the writer or somebody like that to be put in place Yeah, where somebody that they hired as far as musicians would be able to say, man, he's really, man, I worked with this kid and he was incredible. You know? Yeah. 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 So it, it's just a word of mouth right. scenario and experience, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you'll get the call and, and I'll say, uh, well, I'm just happy to be on your list. You know, I, yeah. I can't do it, but I'm, I'm glad I was yep. on, you know, I, I don't even want to know where I am on your list. It doesn't matter. Yeah, right. It really doesn't matter. I'm just happy to be on there. And, yeah, and, and in be... some cases, people have requested somebody, but the the project has to be done on that specific time. Right. So they're comfortable in going on yeah. with approved mm-hmm. you know, roster in yeah. their world. Right. That they know that in most cases, and I found this out even in my mentoring that, you know, we all know what to do. You know, mm. there's only five beats. <laughs> and then it's just a matter of performing those beats. You yeah. know what I mean? And locking yeah. in with the other people who are going to be doing that. But truthfully, those beats work in any tempo. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so right. I've always been able to, I write it out and I show them, I said, okay, you'll find this one. You'll find this one. You'll find this one. Yeah. Now, if it was something doom to doom doom, you know that I said in a ballad to be doom to doom doom, you know, uh-huh. and thus it goes on. Right, so, tempo wise, yeah. Well, I know it's it's it seems that simple, and I I mean I agree with you. No, well, in beat wise, it is. Mm-hmm. In performance and chemistry, that's a whole different thing on how you feel with the rest of the band or your co-partner on the bass of yes. how that locks in. Yes. Because not necessarily you playing that locks in. Yes. You can be the right beat. Yeah. But what you're listening to and how you're listening to it, as far as click world, where you feel that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the rest of it is is how to create in your subliminal that the, the click is the center of a beat doesn't mean you jump on it yeah you know you might want that snare to be milliseconds behind that beat you know yeah for more of what steve cropper always called the bacon side of the beat you know okay <laughs> <laughs> so you know there's different feels and a lot of that has to do with frequenting genre you know whether you're going to listen to r&b progressive country traditional country Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's going to be metal, you know, mm-hmm. anything, mm-hmm. but know and listen to that because yeah. that way it's inside of you and you're not going to be trying to manufacture it. I you're going to listen to something and understand, you know, why that feel is what it is. Yeah. And if it's if that's in your head, then most cases of particular pieces of music, that is a reference for you if somebody, because... I always make a joke when somebody has their chart written out and they say like, I like Keith Urban. I'm like, oh my God, you mean he converted? You know, just a joke, you know. But anyway, we know what that means. And they'll say, I like Keith Urban, and they might mention a particular song. Yeah. And sometimes they play it as an example, which one that they're shooting for. Okay. And so you have to be able to reference sometimes if they don't have that material. If they don't have it and they mention it, you know, 
then it'd be nice to know that you know what that is. Yeah. So pulling from different artists and different genre, kind of having a good grip on history. Yeah. Oh, history is absolutely, to me, important because if somebody does come up and they go, because like when I did Knopfler's record, we did two actually stone country songs, of all things. Yeah. And... You have to know what that is. Right. You know what I mean? Because yes. he knows what it is. Yes. Yes. And uh, then also, then after that, get up into his world of whatever it is he's going for, you know. So, uh, I let me get this straight. You're talking about kind of having an understanding from your vantage point. You're having a, a good grip of different genres to be able to interpret the feel where the pocket lies if you're playing, yeah. say, a metal feel yep. or an R&B thing. So yep. just take those two, for example, which seem like polar opposites. But so do you kind of, are you pulling from that experience, from your listening experience, your, your knowledge of history to determine how you're going to approach your feel that day, that song, or you're like, uh, this is the Eddie Bears thing. They've hired Eddie Bears. This is how I'm going to play. Yeah, I don't. I don't know because we we're all influenced, and yeah. so like when I first came here, such as you, and you know, all of a sudden it's a culture shock because I didn't grow up with country music, you know. Yeah. So yeah. with that, one thing I was really on top of is that I wanted to listen to what was there. Mm -hmm. On that transition when Buddy Harmon and all those A-team guys were playing those records. And I wanted to, not as far as condescending, because that's the other side that I try to teach to say, you know, you can't condescend to a genre. Because you think, oh man, that's country and that's old country and mm -hmm. it's stupid mm -hmm. and blah, 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 blah. And well, okay, well, yeah. all I'd ever say is if you get called for a session that needs that and you, know, you 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 consider it that way, then call me, and I'll do the... I'll and I'll do, it. I'll do it. <laughs> right, yeah. so being open to all... Yeah, that. I think the rest of it becomes subliminal. I think it's a situation where if you really study and want really want to know and figure out why those efforts were so successful, you know, and you study them. Yeah. Like all the Buddy Harmon stuff, I studied it, and luckily uh, I was able to be befriended and talk with him about specific things that he did yeah. because before we had loops before we had uh certain percussion standard he made up his own you know you would always hear things on a record i go what the heck was that you know yeah. well i played uh, the back of a guitar or i and i said what was the most unusual thing that you ever overdubbed on and he said it was a spare tire you know of course i made a joke was that four ply or was that you know <laughs> but that was the thing he was always thinking to innovate to add something that wasn't what we would consider standard percussion anybody yeah. would know what a kunga is yeah. now in my early years <clears throat> i don't know if i was the first one to start it but a long long time ago i started turning the snares off and playing kunga patterns Right. On records. Yeah. I did it on Rodney Crowell, uh, Judds, and people like that. Yeah. And then I heard it more frequently because it's not so stereotyped as saying, well, it's the feel of something like that, but it's a different timber, you know, which yeah. is, it's really a cool thing to do, you know? Right, yeah. right. I know sometimes when people want percussion, they don't want a traditional pattern. Exactly. 
you know, they want that tone, they want that, especially with contemporary genres and different things like that. But they need that texture, yeah. that frequency. And I found in country music, not at all did you hear kungas or bongos or stuff like that. But when I was doing the hand snare thing, yeah, it really fit in with a piece that didn't need to go any bigger, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. And it really helped. I uh, reached out to a couple, a handful of friends of mine just to say, hey, I'm going to be talking with Eddie coming up. Um, any ideas, any input, and 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 I got some great questions, and and I was thinking of this question that uh, Lee Kelly wanted me to throw your way. Yeah, that's, Lee. that's um, uh, close to what we're talking about right now, and. So it, it, this is kind of what he says. Uh, well, this is exactly what he says. Not yeah, kind of. Exactly. <laughs> he says, uh, when laying down a track, is there something about the way you move within the track, even when on a click? Like, um, I'm trying to explain. I, I, I spoke, actually, Lee has been on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Beckett has been on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe uh, uh, one of the things that Mark and I talked about was kind of, where one is, where two is, where mm-hmm. three is, and where four is. Is there, uh, do you ever break it down? Do you have like a, um, uh, is there a method to the madness, the feel as far as, because I know Mark talked mm. about, uh, no, no. I think we all have performance inside of us. Yeah. And the rest of it is our capability of understanding who we're playing with. Now, I try to make an assumption of what I'm hearing collectively. Mm-hmm. So if the click's playing, yeah. but I hear specific instruments at a certain place. Like on or, top or... Even, or yeah, if, if it's a keyboard, yeah. if it's an electric guitar mm-hmm. or acoustic player, very important. Yes. Um, I think you have to... And we're really talking milliseconds of difference when it comes to a click. Yeah, but I want to listen overall to the feel of how everyone's interpreting that click, mm-hmm. and I would rather play with the band than jump on that click. Yeah, and like I've always said, even with a click, you could do four takes to that same click, and they'll all be different within yes a fractions. Yes, but they'll still feel different because somebody might hit that chorus and feel it differently than they did the one they did the take before. Just, okay. Yeah. But they're not going to be so far off. Right. You know, but still, I think overall, I think in our performances world and how we assess everything that we're playing to, I I don't think you can think. Yeah. I don't think it's a thinking thing. And I think if you think, it's going to be noticeable. Right. You're going to hear it in the performance. Yeah. And I don't like thinking. I like being able just to perform it. Now, what I will do is that, say, on the first take, they'll uh, I'll come across something on a specific segue feel mm-hmm. to get into a specific place, and I'll go, wow, I, I really like that. So if they do another one, I will retain that mm-hmm. because I liked what I did, mm-hmm. but it still came out of, you know, spontaneity. So, uh, and just to finish up what he, what he was saying, and I think you've answered the, the rest of the question, it was... Uh, uh, what are you keying in on during the take to make those slight adjustments and give the track a lift or lay it back? Vocals, bass, guitar, or, or everything. Yeah. Um, so I know that you're. I'm. I'm. 
from what I'm gathering, you're saying there's sometimes certain instruments, it depends on the session, depends on the song. Some things will stand out more than others, or maybe you'll key into something that's important on that song. But you did mention, put some emphasis on the acoustic guitar. Yes, absolutely. So I, uh, could you expound upon that? <clears throat> well, the acoustic is more consistent mm-hmm. in the feel. Right. And you'll hear it. And specific acoustic players, we have some great ones. Yeah. But that is something you lock into because I think more than not, people who are doing specific parts are not as consistent in the rhythm mm-hmm. yeah. as the acoustic player is. Right. So with that, I can really hone in on that and I can kind of tell obviously where he's at yeah. with that. Now, it could be a mutual respect. Maybe he's wanting to hear me, but I can tell if he is. Yeah. And if he's doing that, I hear him lock in yeah. with me because we're the only really consistent thread mm-hmm. where piano players might be playing chords in specific, you know, uh, like stabbing com- or whatever you want to call comping it. Comping rhythms yeah. and stuff. Comping yeah. rhythms. And, and, and the electric might be doing more of an arpeggiating thing or power chording or whatever. Yeah. But it's not going to be the consistent thread that an acoustic does. Right. Because in whatever the piece is, if it starts off smaller and it's finger-picked, then you know the arpeggiation of that, and you can tell. And then when it gets into rhythm, you can tell that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, in a lot of cases, I, I like hearing that. And then I think that the other players also lock in, you know, because I know in a lot of people who might say, uh, well, well, turn up, turn up the hi hat because I want to, and I'll just go. No, no, I don't think because not all the time am I going to play the same pattern on a hi hat. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. in a specific part of the song, right? So it might be just quarter notes, and then when it gets to the chorus, I'll do an eighth note pattern or whatever. Yeah. And sometimes I put the little, you know, that yeah. anything, you know. Yeah. So I would rather them musically adhere to again the acoustic player. Yeah. Because I will lock in with him. Yeah. Uh, I worked with Don in the studio uh, uh, last year, and uh, I wish I could remember the acoustic player that was on the session. Experienced guy. I know you've worked with him many times. He was the savior for me. I had his time and his feel was just glorious. Yeah. And it made the whole session yeah. wonderful. And I thought if I could lock in with him and that frequency, and this is the other thing, this is my question to you is, I always thought that not only that you're talking about rhythmic consistency that that acoustic, that that player brings to right. the song that you have to, uh, that you want to be in sync with, but also I wonder, is it the frequency as well? Like I feel like whatever pattern I'm playing on the hi-hat or ride, that acoustic guitar is there as well. And it's almost like if those two things are together, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. It is. You know. And again, you don't have to just as far as what he's playing, because we have a lot of acoustic players that know, you know, he knows to do that, but maybe I just want an eighth note through that. Mm-hmm. But he's doing that, so I don't have to do it. Right. And... That, like you said, when you lock in with that, and those two become that that oneness, it, yeah. it is a beautiful thing, you know, yeah. to be able to feel that. Yeah. And I think a lot of our acoustic players are so incredible. You know, they <laughs> they really are. We have some greatest musicians here. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, 
That's so. pretty amazing. Um, if you don't mind, I'd love to jump back and kind of start and give some background uh, to our listeners on kind of where you're from. Uh, are you from Oakland? Well, I was born in Maryland. My father was a fighter pilot. Okay. So I was born on the naval base there. Right. Uh, and then from moving around, of course, I, as most people know, I started off as a classical piano player. Yes. So from that, uh, when I came to Nashville, I was in Oakland for a while. And yeah. uh, then I came to Nashville, and it was probably late 73. And, of course, the Tongari needing work. So I heard about an audition down at the Carousel Club in Printer's Alley. And I went down. They had a quartet that played in between the bigger artists. And so there was like three or four guys in front of me. But anyway, by the end of the audition, this massive man comes up and says, <laughs> you got it. You're the guy. And it was Larry London. Yeah. And uh, so I got to work with him for a year and a half. And he really was an inspiration. I mean, as, as everybody knows. Yeah. And he was a great mentor. And uh, after that year... Uh, I was able to move on and actually pursue more professional drum positions, which I did. I got a, a in a club down on Third Avenue called the Backstage, and there was an embedded band there by the owner, Clarence Perry and the Mercy Blues. So mm -hmm. I got in with that, also to be able to check out the studio scene. So uh, just, you know, as squat goes into town they would say well there's a new studio open up and over off of division street and everything like that so well, i'm gonna go check it out yeah well happenstance is, is that i walk in the same day that paul worley walks in and uh he had just gotten out of college and we walk in together and both of us pretty much agreed they said well we haven't really got anything going we said you don't have to pay us until you can we just want to experience and so we did and we were with them for eight or nine years until wow. Paul became such a successful producer that we started our own studio, The Money Pit, and yeah. uh, had that for 27 years. And uh, But throughout that process, I did find, because we were frequented on demos, Yeah. and as a writer, I was signed to Acuff Rose by Don Gant. He was there. But when Don Gant moved over to Tree, me and Don Cook moved over with him. So I was on the front end or right in with some of the greatest writers that Tree ever had, you know, from Sonny Throckmorton, Glenn Martin, Nat Stuckey, Curly Putnam, Robbie Braddock, you know. Mm -hmm. So I watched that whole evolution mm -hmm. as it grew where they would sign new writers like Ray Van Hoy and other people that came in. So we all knew each other in that growing situation. Mm -hmm. And what happened in those days was a demo was your best um, – advertising because at that time an artist or producer might get that demo and go man this thing really feels great i, I want that guy yeah yeah and so then you get the call right where today i think everything is generically pretty much the same mm. by the time even our demos sound like the records now yeah yeah by the time our engineering staffs who are very keen on being able to quantize and do everything mm -hmm. they do put the loops in everything mm -hmm. that there's really no difference so there really isn't a detection to be able to say this guy you know right that the the the, the style maybe doesn't jump out as much no it's not because yeah. i mean even some of the records i've done when i get the record back i went oh okay well <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize I was so precise, you know, <laughs> locked in with everything, you know. And uh, so, but but I think uh, the bottom line is, is now the engineers are 
so educated on audio quantizing, on being able to make that record sound like all the efforts we hear now. And I realize there's a whole situation about they all sound the same, but you know, I, I don't, I don't look at it that way. Mm-hmm. I look at it like, look, this is the era that we're in. Yeah. So those pieces of music, however anybody wants to judge them or not judge them, you know, we have to look at the artists that are making those songs big mm-hmm. and why that demographic is frequenting them. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I realize we're in pretty much a chant era now, you know, if it says, whoa, and yeah, and all that. Yeah. But yeah. people want that, you know. Yeah. They want to. They yeah. want to drive to work with it, and, and they want to work with it. They want to drive home with it. They want to mm-hmm. party with it. They want to work out to it. Yeah. So a lot of the what we would consider significant song content lyrically is not as important. Mm-hmm. It is, and some of them will hear that. But I think the the truth of that is in what we look at the copyrights that have lasted over forty years mm. of the songs that still make money. Right. Where a lot of these songs are pretty much, they're frequented on the radio, you know, but you know, it's not going to be something you But in keep, 10 years, you're new. No, not, you're not going to see a frequented copyright being able to make that kind of money. Right, right. It's interesting. I was talking to a guitar player, a friend of mine, and I said, you know, when I'm coming up with a, I think this would be a great song to perform live. I think it would go over well. And, and, and a lot of times I'm completely wrong about that. Uh, that's the thing about Don. He he really knows how to read an audience. Yeah. And I and we were having this conversation about musicians that seem to be we we think that this is a this is a great song. I, I everyone should love this song, but it doesn't always translate. Well, uh, let me say one thing on that behalf. I think we all do know what a great song is. Mm. It may not be what they're looking for now. Mm. And if you were to bypass that hierarchy that allows that particular effort to get out, those people would love that song. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that that's a truth because it's almost like if we look at our political mayhem right now, <laughs> okay, <laughs> the bottom line is what is there for us to choose from is chosen by somebody else mm-hmm. and delegate counts and everything yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Right. It may not be what we would look for or want. But we're subject to what they come down to yeah. after their conventions, everything. Okay, well, here's the person you're going to vote for. Yeah. Well, in music, a lot of times that hierarchy has that same capability of being able to allow what comes out of their camps yeah. to be able to see that's what you're going to hear on a radio. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean because when you look at even efforts, say, man, that sold a million copies. That sold two million. Well, in a country of 330 million people, I promise you we could find a good two or three million who would really love the songs that you and I say are great. Yeah. But we don't have the power to be able to market and promote to those people. Sure. sure. You know, and radio's not going to do it because they're still conglomerated into what they choose that is presented to them. They will have to prove it amongst their, whatever you want to call their little bases of testing and stuff like that. But you're only talking about a hundred people. Right. Right. That's just like polls that are just, you know, give me a break, you know, right, right, a hundred right. people, you bring into a room, uh, lose their innocent ear because all of a sudden they're empowered. Yeah. Oh, I hit to choose. Yeah, okay, right, right. You know, this is serious stuff. This yeah. isn't family. Feud. Yeah, no, I'm gonna really, uh, you know. And again, yeah. what they're presented, right, right? What is shown to those people is what is shown out to the fact. Then yeah. we realize, for anybody who's never got in depth about 
the the legal payola aspect of it is that once radio would come back and say no we really love this record well then it comes down to who has the money to be able to run that up a chart mm-hmm. you know if you're looking at top 20 if you're looking at top 10 everything you're looking at anything over to 300 400,000 dollars yeah and that is the, is the truth yeah the only thing that can beat that out would be a a uh, a social media viral Mm-hmm. Where maybe a group or something just puts something out that all of a sudden achieves millions of views, yeah. Then it kind of is like, oh yeah, well sure, we'll, we'll take that on. You so know, w- with all with with, do you think that that is a creates more of a level playing field? The social media, I, I know that it it has does its, if you have a way of taking advantage of it. Yeah. If you're if if certain camps have or artists or bands have an idea mm-hmm. that when they film it or whenever they do it that has that capability of, of becoming viral you yeah. know yeah i mean and again it comes down to the the original or the the creativity of that effort yeah that comes out where obviously if i see something i'm gonna mark mark you're not watch this <laughs> and you see it well you know and oh, if we yeah. all freak out over it oh, well yeah. you're gonna start seeing yeah, yeah views 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 and right. the truth is if any group is going to be or an artist is going to be grooved by a label mm-hmm. that is one of the first things the label wants to see is social media yeah because if they see you've already made this headway right that's important to them sure i mean i know really i mean obviously there's the showcase you got to have a showcase right if they have the capability of development aspect then they'll take it on and say yeah we can really make this happen mm-hmm. in most cases they can't because they're not going to spend time mm-hmm. they want something already done yeah where they can take their machine and promotion and take it the rest of the way but the truth is they're not going to want to spend all that time right in breaking it they want something that's already pretty well broken or has a template that they look at percentage wise that they go man this has already done this right and has that changed a lot over the decades? Have you seen that? Have you seen le- uh, uh, labels wanting to spend less time? Or Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We all know, and I'm sure you know, and everyone out there listening knows, people who are incredibly talented and worthy, and we can't figure out why they can't mm-hmm. make progress. Mm-hmm. And it's because, well, we have new A&R departments now. You know, you have the voice you have mm. the, these reality shows, mm-hmm. you know, Idol's over now, but there are going to be other formats that come up. Right. Those people I see more frequented from those top eight people that won that are going to be more courted by a label because they've already had millions of views. Yes. Yeah. And that's a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. So you're not going to, unless it is an embedded management company yeah. that has the uh, power and knows, like, let's just take Bob Doyle, for example. Okay, well, everybody knows him from, you know, Garth and Van Perry and all that. Well, mm-hmm. if he takes something on, he's going to have the power to be able to go to a label and say, man, I've got this, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because of that, that uh, familiar aspect of it, whoever the head of the label is or anything like that, oh, Bob, man, yeah, well, we're we're going Sure. We're going to sure. go with you because sure. we already know in management world, you'll take it yeah. because he also has the power to be able to put this artist in front of somebody, even without a hit record, he can put them on a tour, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? So as a drummer, 
Yep. How do how do we navigate this new world? How do we navigate the way music is produced and marketed? And uh, even if it's maybe not a, a genre we're completely invested in, how do you um, how do you adapt to these trends, these changes? Well, I, I listen to what it is that I see as the new. Yeah, so-called new uh, production or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I get inside of it. Mm-hmm. I study what's on there. Not study, but I listen to it. Yeah, and I make sure that I'm equipped with all that that can do it. Can I ask you about recording with uh, an artist like Easton Corbin? Yeah. So you've been on th- three of his records. Yeah. And he's a new artist. Yeah. Um. So, for example. When you, what was your approach to that? That uh, was there something special, something different that you did? When no, you, no, no. It's a song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if somebody pulled out a song, like we did one thing on his newest album, that was more of, if you want to call it country hip hop music, mm-hmm. you know, called Yup. It had a loop, and not that he rapped through it, but it had that feel, right? As compared to maybe just a straight ahead country effort, like he sings. Yes. So any one of us, you know that if they put that song in front of you, you're already going to know. Yeah. And they're going to say, well, we want this, we want that. And that that automatically triggers everything in your mind, the song. Mm -hmm. Plus they play a demo. Yeah. You know, it's not like you're going from scratch. As my early years, a lot of the big producers I worked for didn't like that. Brent Mayer would never play a demo. He always played an acoustic version of the song. Yeah. So you're not influenced. Yeah. A lot of people know that you were a piano player, but, I mean, why the transition? Had you played drums before? Yes. Okay. But I'm like any one of us who would frequent another instrument. You know, maybe you've picked up a guitar before. Yeah, okay. I own a guitar. That's okay. about it. Well, there you go. But are you a professional guitar <laughs> <No>. <laughs> player? Well, that's my point. So during my early years, yeah, I would play drums. I was in a band that worked out because the the band core had a piano player, B3 player that yeah. sang, uh-huh. and the drummer would come out and sing. So it worked out for me. When the drummer would come, I'm, I'm going to play. Maybe I didn't play to the capacity of what he could yeah. But I could keep the beat and I could play it. Yeah. As when the the other guy and the B three came out, I could play the B three, and mm-hmm. so it worked out in that sense. But to be able to get into professional recording, yeah, yeah, Larry was very mentoring in that respect. And what was it about you that he saw and said, "You know what? You need to be a drummer." You know, uh, I think because it was a new world. And I wasn't condescending to what I was in. Of course, I was playing mainstream when I was with Larry. Mm -hmm. But all my formal training up to that in classical, and again, not condescending to it, but I was an interpreter. Hmm. You know, anybody with the knowledge and the capability of me could put a piece of music in front of you, and we were all going to perform it the same Mm -hmm. if we really read the music. Yeah. So that would be like when I would sit down and I would play... You know, like Ravel or or mm-hmm. or uh, Debussy or Mozart. You know, mm-hmm. any one of those. And if I sat down and play it, 
and somebody would hear you play and go, my God, Eddie, that's incredible. Well, the first thing I would do is I go, yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, that's not me. Right. I'm performing and I'm reading anything else that anyone else aside of me would sit down and do the same thing. It's, it's the, the classical musician, the way they're yeah, trying to interpret what's on the page. it's an interpretive mode. On the page. Yeah, I'm interpretive, not creative. Right. And if you start creating, then you're going to be judged for that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can't innovate on what the masters wrote. Yeah. You know? Well, when you A-B that, and piano, drums, yeah. classically trained to being a, a studio musician, yeah. which involves constant improvisation and ideas and creating, those just seem like completely different worlds. Um, and somehow you've made it really work. Uh, do you think that maybe the fact that you were considered yourself a piano player first, that you were able to just kind of go in and just without any preconceived notions of what a drummer is supposed to do, but just play music? Yeah, I think there's something embedded in all of us as drummers to be able to realize first that we did have coordination. Yeah. We knew how to play all those instruments together. Yeah. You know, you had a hi-hat beat, you had a kick drum, you had a snare beat, mm -hmm. you know, you had tom fill beats. So I think with that, you had to have embedded and coordinating factors. Yeah. You can't just sit down to a set of drums. And we all know that even from people that we, they said, oh, man, can I? And then you watch them and you go, wow. Well, then you realize <laughs> what we, you know, had. Yeah. Or what we have inside of us. Yeah. So I had that. Okay. So the rest of it was being able to further that. You know, into hearing a feel of whatever particular music I was yeah. going to play and adapt to that. Yeah. And say, man, I love that beat. I want to play that. Yeah. You know, and so then you would obviously, if you're going to play that, then you would do that. You would, just, in a sense, practice. Well, what did you do from like 1974 until, let's say, um, the first Dolly Parton session that you did? Yeah. Well, the great thing was that top 40 band I was in. I was playing every hit record. Yeah. You know, every night for five nights a week. Drums. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to have to learn the songs and play them, you know. Yeah. And they would be everything. Like I said, all the top 10, top 20, top 30 records. And even going back into some of the early years, however that band would want to say, here was a great song, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So by doing that, you know, you have to sit and learn the record. You have to learn the yeah. beats of that record. Yeah. So in a sense, five nights a week. Right. You know, sure. I'm doing it. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so that became automatic. Then when the studio came in with me and Worley, because we were the core of that production company, we got to do the same thing. And the thing was, is that by getting in the music community and other things, and I still played keyboards and stuff. I played on some stuff for Buddy Kill and uh, yeah. B3. He liked the way I played B3. Yeah. But drums as well. But but what we got to do in there, we did sound the likes mm -hmm. with, uh, in, in the production company. We did commercials out to Wazoo. I mean, crazy. And uh, then we did specialty projects like for Walt Disney mm -hmm. and for National Geographic and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was such a diversity in music. And uh, what great was, I met a guy named Stan Schulman 
who came from New York, he had a record company called Dunes Records. He had two major artists uh, that he had really made big. When he came down here, he temporarily took over MCA, but then as I got to know him, because I was on one of his recordings, mm -hmm. and he got to talk, and he says, you know, I would really love to involve you in my production stuff. He says, I've been talking to KTEL, mm -hmm. and what people didn't know you just think at Cato where you're just getting sound alikes. What they started is realizing the five-year statute of an artist that if they haven't been signed to that record within five years, you could pay them a flat fee and come in and do their record again, and you own the master. Oh, wow. That still carries on today. So because of that whole initiation, we did. And the great thing about it was is it became a buyout. So... My movie credits, as you see, from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, yeah. you admit, all that came from that catalog because it was the original artist. We would bring in Little Richard and did 21 of his sides. We brought in Strawberry Longcrop, Paul Revere and the Raiders. We brought in uh, Sam and Dave. We brought in Johnny Taylor. We brought in Percy Sledge. And we re-recorded those records verbatim. I mean, because we had the original artist, so Paul and I were meticulously getting in to make sure that we honored that record obviously the sonics were a lot better yeah than that even in that day sure so the records came out with the original artist right sounding incredible so yeah. the movie companies went yeah we want that because all we have to do is pay for it yeah so with that and i think in the latter years in the 70s with don gant over tree became the thing where your name gets out Mm -hmm. And also because of some of the artists that I work with there, I got to meet people. And I remember Deborah Allen's record. She mm -hmm. said, I want you, blah, 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 blah. But she said, I want Leland Sklar. Nice. So Leland flies in. We become very close, and we still are today. Yeah. He was the one. He said, you're going to be getting a call from Mike Post. <laughs> and I said, wow, you mean like all the history blues, everything? He said, yeah, he's going to be producing Dolly Parton as a record. Yeah. Uh, nine to five. Nine to five. And so that's the kind of thing that word of mouth and also people who meet you, mm -hmm. who are your great promoter, mm -hmm. you know, and that worked out. So. so do you have, do you ever carry business cards? Have you ever used anything like that? No, what? Business cards. No. No. <laughs> no, you're my business card. All right. And I'll be your business card. Right. Thank you, man. You know, business cards, of course, in our world today. Right. Somebody said, man, can I have your number? Sure. Send me a text. I'll well, that's why I ask, because my co-host and I are getting ready to go to NAM, uh, and just to try and, and, and spread the word about the podcast. Well, you and need a business card for that. Exactly. And I said, do you think we should get business cards? And yeah. we had that conversation. Absolutely. And he goes, you know, it's, I know they're going out, but uh, you know, I have a box of maybe 500 or 1,000 I bought 10 years ago. I still have them. Yeah. But, but what, what do they refer to? Musicians? Or do they refer to businesses? Well, right. This one, my personal one, was for me. But yeah. it's interesting how uh, in the last, I've stayed busy for the last 16 years yeah. uh, working, and it's not been with the business card. I guess that's that was kind of my Well, it is that. But when you point. have a venture where you have yeah, diversified your life, yeah, you want to promote that. Okay. And in most people's worlds... Yeah. If they meet you and you're telling them or describing what your business is, I, I do podcasts that are like that. Oh, good. Here's my, here's my card. Yeah. They will take that. But you're okay. I know what you're saying. Sure. Yeah. I was trying to make a silly point, but you're 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 telling me that a personal 
musicians, that one-on-one thing. The business card isn't necessarily the no. thing. It's the word of mouth. It's yeah. the relationships. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's great. I love that. I wanted to ask about uh, working with certain artists at the beginning of their careers, uh, like George Strait, the Judds, Randy Travis, um, Terry Clark, and we mentioned Easton Corbin, a a newer artist. Mm -hmm. Um, Was there something about those experiences or something those artists brought to the table that... uh, did you hear something that said, this is going to be huge? I do. I yeah. did on yeah. the front end of all that. Yeah. I remember when I first did the demo that became the records with the judge, I remember going around because I was working with Jim Ed Norman and doing a lot of the Ann Murray's and uh, mm-hmm. all the stuff that I was doing. And I remember I was talking to Jim Ed. I said, have you ever heard of the judge? He said, no. I said, well, you will. Yeah. I knew. It was the same thing. I remember Alan Jackson when we first went in. He had that natural talent in his songs. Yeah. You know, and I remember talking to him. I said, Alan, I said, you know, I never step out, but I have to tell you, this is going to be incredible. And I remember his wife saying, oh, my God, you, you, you really think so? Because I'd really like to quit being a flight attendant. I said, yeah, of course, now they own their own, own aircraft and everything. So, but, <laughs> but I did enjoy watching that happen and a lot of times within us uh we see the uniqueness even though it might be yeah that's typical country song Mm -hmm. you know um there's still something about the artist himself Mm -hmm. and it was sort of like even with george Strait, where we would joke you know about you know seeing him live on a stage but of course i mean you're talking millions and millions of records but right making a joke saying man yeah george i watched you on that one show and the way you turned your head away from the mic and brought it back i said man i was just, <laughs> you know and he would laugh he knows <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but there's something charismatic about everyone but there's something i think inside of us that can detect that as soon as we hear it and go my god yeah 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 do you think that's still possible today with, well, know. I think from what we discussed earlier, it is. But now the powers that be have to come into play that are going to have that. Back in that day, labels had the capability of development. Mm-hmm. And they had the money to do that. Mm-hmm. Then it became, they don't have the time anymore. And I think when the new A&R departments came out as far as the voice and the uh, and uh, American Idol and reality shows and stuff like that. Plus the embedded managers who had already had success. Mm-hmm. Anybody they took on, they could certainly go over top of people. Mm-hmm. The only one I know that now is looking in that world is Scott Bruschetta. I know there's been a couple of artists, but still the artists that he would bring in, well, she made the top five of Idol, you know. She made, mm-hmm. So you're still hearing mm-hmm. that rather than a great manager. I think the last one might have came from Ban Perry when Bob Doyle brought them in, mm-hmm. and he had that power to be able to push it to a label mm-hmm. to say, you know, sitting down at the table, uh, I can do this. You know I can do this. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they would go, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, a lot of our work uh, being done. 
yeah. where we don't have to worry about the, the promotion. We do, but not the visual aspect of it where you can make that happen by putting them in front of yeah. thousands of people. Yeah. You yeah. know, so I, I, I would say it's more infrequent now. You've won ACM Drummer of the Year 13 times. 14. 14 times. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Uh, and 11 times in a row, is that Yeah, correct? there was 11 consecutive because as it was going on, I mean, after a while, even with your own humbleness, <laughs> after the 10th year, I was going, you know, I'm up there with my colleagues and everything like that. Yeah. And so John Briggs and, uh, oh, man, Chris, no one... Uh, it was Tim Dubois. They were on the board, and they contacted me, and they said, we need to be able to submit something here. And you've been a board of governor and heiress and everything, and what your ideas would be. And I said, well, obviously, I'm thrilled with what's happened so far. <laughs> Who wouldn't be? Yeah. And I said, my view would be that we do a one-on-one-off, where if I win this year, I can't be nominated the next year. Mm. Mm-hmm. Then the following year, I could be nominated again. Mm-hmm. And they said, that is a great idea. So they go back to their committee meetings and everything, wherever they meet. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, so that's fair. You know, that's good. So what happens is I get the nominations, and I'm nominated for the 11th time. And I had to call John and him. I went, what? what the heck? They said, well, they didn't really put it in place, so I won the 11th year. Then it started alternating. I see. And then from that time on, then it was an every two-year thing, which finally I got to 14. Okay. And I've actually talked to them and going, you know, because we started making it more embedded on the RMA, let them be the ones mm. that really look at the frequency of recording musicians, mm. you know, to, to, to be nominated. Yeah. Which my voice on that was that look you know there's so many worthy out there you know to do that and the only other respect to that and and again not the meeting and accolade but sure your phone's not going to ring anymore well and you know i guess what that's I mean. what i was trying to figure out it's like well what can i what kind of question can i come up with regarding some of these accolades and and let me just throw this one out there as well drum magazine putting you in the top 10 of Recording recorded drummers of all time right. as well. With, and, I mean, with amazing company. Just, just, yep. just. So I, you're kind of answering a possible question. What does that mean? What does well, that mean I did. You? I have to say, you know, some people might say, "Well, you know, you should be grateful." And I said, "I am grateful." I said, ten of the of the uh, whatever they named it of the. Something recorded drummers. Yeah. I forget yeah. the first part of it, but, but I said, I wish they hadn't said of all time. Uh, yeah, rated top 10 session player of all time by Drum Magazine. Yeah, I yeah, said, that's... you got to leave all time off of that. <laughs> you know, this life isn't over with yet, and there's plenty of people who are coming up that are achieving everything that I've achieved and probably will go further. Yeah. You know, yeah. so for this particular time, that's great. That's wonderful. Yeah. It, it rules you out of being able to do another one of all time. <laughs> so you're going to have some more all-timers in there. You know what I mean? Uh, it's 
pretty amazing, though. It is really amazing. It, you know, I can't say that, again, any one of us are honored for that. Yeah. But I do take little snips here and there just in logic to be able to say, you know, of all time, I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, it, I want to talk about um, your style. And we've had a couple different drummers on here, uh, uh, Greg Lohman. And um, I'm, I'm trying to remember who else, but the, the open-handed Mark. style playing. Mark, does Mark play open-handed yep. as well? Okay. Uh, where did that come from? You know, I did, I did play conventional, but I had the ambidextrous capability. Mm-hmm. But when I injured my wrist and I was out for eight months. Eight months? Yeah. Okay. Eight months, they had to reconstruct all that. And uh, they put in a, a scaphoid piece and they pinned that. But for those eight months... This is your... This, we're looking at your left hand. You're looking at the snare. Yeah. And I couldn't use the snare anymore for those time if I wanted to work out. So obviously I had to make that a hi-hat. Yeah. And But I had already been able to go back and forth. And even now today, I will do it because I found if I go back to conventional, that I play differently. It's mm-hmm. a different feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, I mean... You know, but most people sit at and they go, you know, logically that because look at that, you've got all that. Yeah, you've got room. You got room to really hit that snare. You yeah. know. So what was was that the catalyst? Was it was the injury the reason? Well, yeah, that definitely put the. Yeah. Made it made it so. What year was that? That was eighty five. Eighty five. Eighty five. Okay. Uh, there's a modern drummer festival that you're on. Yes, and, and I'm wearing up. Yeah. Yeah. What, and that was later. That was oh yeah, that's later. Yeah, I still would have to wear. You know how it is in any breaking injury. There's mm-hmm. things that you know it becomes all of a sudden the the phobia. Was well, it the weather? Is it is something that making it hurt? You know. Yeah. Yeah. So as Barry Beckett always said, it's about the groove. Yeah. Now, if you can groove, it I don't know. It doesn't matter if you have a cast on her, <laughs> which I did wear a cast playing some great records. What has changed for you? Well, if you look at the evolution from when I first started, it was acoustic drums. Yeah. Then I, Ray Van Hoy and Chuck Ainley, created triggering Mm -hmm. off of 57 microphones extra on toms and snare and kick that triggered a Simmons 5. Now, I didn't use the, you know, we just used the attack and the noise. Uh Like, like that. So we did the record that way. Uh Uh-huh. What happens is, is Tony Brown hears it, and by the time Tony freaks out over it, then Bowen hears it. Mm. Bowen said, I want to know everything about that. Well, what happens is uh, Bowen starts talking to Wendell and getting samples, mm-hmm. which at that time, they didn't really have the capability of being right on the money, maybe 15 milliseconds. Mm. But all those records I did with Bowen, he would re-trigger sounds, which drove me nuts because I would talk to his engineer when I would hear a record come out. I went, the kick drum is so far behind the beat. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, he goes, well, we used an AMS. We sent, we put the sample, the window sample on there. When it would get out of sync with it, then we would just record it again. I said, yeah, but even on its own, it was 15 milliseconds behind. 
Yeah. No matter how accurate it was. So, right, right, right. So it's hard to listen to those records when I hear them. Maybe yeah. it didn't have nothing to do with success, but for me, it was like, oh my God. You know, but from that, then all of a sudden, a lot of us had to be carrying refrigerators around with us. So my refrigerator, I had the Akai sampler, I had D drums, I had a mixer, I had all my triggering respects mm-hmm. uh, that I was using from PCMs or whatever I had uh-huh. to trigger my units. And wow. that went on for a while. Yeah. And then when they finally got in where engineers were capable of sound replace, you didn't need that anymore. Yeah. And then it became a circumstance of loops and things like that, where after a while, of course, radio governing everything would say, no, we don't want to hear any more loops. Okay. Mm-hmm. The loops are gone. And of course, now <laughs> not only are loops back, but so is Superior Drummer or any of the other drum yeah. creating situations, such as the guy with the Florida Georgia Line who does everything. And yeah. of course, Mutt did it with uh, Sonia's second record. Yeah. That was all program bass and drums. Wow. And, uh, but now that's just part of our world. So the only thing I would say as far as having that, yeah, I think it, it depends on how you want to diversify your, your life fiscally. Mm-hmm. Because when we look at, at uh, Brewster or Shannon and people like that who can get a file and bring it in, they have everything at their house. They not only have their drums, but they also have creative capability of programming drums right putting a loop on or anything like that yeah you know which is i think probably three or four of the artists that i know of are using programmed drums on loops yeah and you can tell it we can tell it mm-hmm. but the average listener no they don't tell it because everything's been audio quantized anyway so right you know Even from the original but if a drummer has it i mean i, I have superior drummer i have to say when i'm done with pieces that i do mm-hmm. they're undetectable yeah. They're so well sampled, you know. Yeah. Which to me the analogy of that is, you know, when you record a record digitally, it's a sample, right? I mean Yeah. Your yeah. drums become samples. Yeah, yeah. They they've been put into one zero world. So Right, right. Yeah, I could capture any of that and I've got a sample. I'll do like a recording and and, and uh, maybe the way it was tracked or I'll get the record back like you're talking about and, and it's like, man, I'm not hearing the toms. Like I think you know, I'm listening from a drummer's standpoint, or that's not the take that I thought we were going to use. And so, a lot of times, you just have to give up the ownership of that performance to the engineer or the producer. You walk out. You got your money. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Because you're talking about what made me think of that is you're saying, "Oh, that kick drum is, you know, yeah, that's old you, sample." No, you're you. Has that been has that been a difficult thing to manage from time to time when you if you know the camp that really helps yeah but you don't know after the fact yeah yeah you don't know what happens after the fact yeah so by the time the record comes out you had no way of knowing that they were going to make the bass and the the, the kick drum and the acoustic and all the other things so yeah just not quantized that, you know. <laughs> You just didn't know. Yeah. So you really don't have anything. You know, uh, like I say, they called you. Mm-hmm. So right. you go on and you sign a car, you get your money, you're gone. And you, like you said, you leave everything in their hands. Yeah. When I was still living in Columbus, I came across uh, Blue Moon Swamp. Yeah. Uh, that you recorded with uh, John, John Fogarty. Fogarty. Um, it, 
is there anything that was I knew there were multiple drummers on that. Yeah. In the, fact, even within drummers, there's multiple drummers. <laughs> <laughs> we all were Frankensteined. Okay. Yeah, there's probably other cuts I was on, but you wouldn't know it. Huh. Is there is there anything about that situation that was special or You know, John himself, which when you go back to my Oakland days, yes. I was good friends with his brother. Tom. When Tom quit the band. Okay. And that was a hole imploding that was sad because Tom was like, it was like the real life Smothers Brothers where Tom went to John and said, you know, I I can sing and I can write. Mm -hmm. And John said, well, then we'll go in and we'll cut some of your songs and everything. And Tom said, well, I've already talked to Saul and uh, he's given me a deal. I'm going to do my own record. Mm -hmm. And John immediately said, Tom, don't do this. He's manipulating Blah, blah, blah. You know, well, anyway, it broke up their family. It broke up the credence circumstance. And then mm-hmm. Saul went on to say to Stu Cook and Doug Clifford, I'll pay you millions of dollars to give your right of the name up oh, wow. so that he would own it, yeah. which they did because they didn't see any future anymore. Oh. John took adversity to that. And that's why when they were put on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, John said, if you let them on the stage, I'm leaving. Mm. I mean, it, it, and it continued on, and John had such an unfortunate just PTSD about the whole thing. Hmm. And being there, I remember being there and even sitting with Tom outside while John was doing his Rangers record and everything on his own, and we would have to wait till he got out of fantasy, and we would go in and jam and do what we were doing. Mm-hmm. But to watch how that still continued on, of course, and when I did his record, and that was still there, still relative. Wow. Because well, I actually inherited it from Picaro. So when I got there, I called Jeff and I said, what the heck happened? He goes, oh, you're going to see. You're going to find out. This is in 97? Yeah. Okay. And, and he said, oh, you're, you'll see. It'll become evident to you. And I said, well, what happened to you? He said, I had two and a half weeks of too much. He said, it finally got to the point I didn't know what he wanted. And so when he came in, Jeff said, I actually told the engineer, I said, solo me and the click. And basically he did. And he just put his hands in front of John. He goes, okay, so what's the problem? And John said, that's it. (laughs) So I do have to say that after that, uh, I did. I spent 42 straight days. Wow. And it was just me and and, uh, Bob Glavin and John. Uh-huh. And you couldn't touch the drums. John had to tune the drums, and they had to be DWs, everything in his court there. Because uh-huh. he obviously he could play drums. He did on a yeah. solo record. Yeah. I just think that with all that torture that went on and on, and, and Saul, of course, was the catalyst, because Saul didn't care about Credence, even though it made him $110 million. Saul mm-hmm. condescended to our intellect. Mm-hmm. He hated Credence, and he wanted to see that destroyed mm. i mean he started prestige label had all his jazz and everything and of course his movies which are known i mean amadeus mm. cuckoo's nest uh Ingus patient i mean obviously yeah but he still tortured john through the years of suing him mm. and at that time there was no frivolous suit uh law and so he could sue him let the legal fees get to seven or eight hundred thousand dollars and drop the case mm. so john would be liable for that 
And he held off John's uh, publishing for all those years. Then finally John wins and gets his retro 18 or 19 million dollars of publishing back and you know but still it never left it never you that's know. amazing yeah so i i know that john is a drummer and uh i've heard stories of just he can be very meticulous about he was meticulous i have to say it wasn't in the recording respect of it it was just in what he finally said he wanted and when you would go in, he said, man, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And, of course, you're just thinking, you might thank God, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> me and Glob would do a take and finally just walk up into the lounge up there in the, at the lighthouse in, the, in Studio City there and, and just sit, you know. Because, again, it wasn't anything that you could have any power over and how what, what was in his mind he was looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, you say you do a take and then and then go take a break. Were they just listening? Were he they... would listen. Uh-huh. It was all on him. And I remember one particular moment, maybe two or three weeks into it, that Springsteen came by, and uh, so he comes in and he's looking around the studio. Of course, we're all analog, and he's seeing all these analog reels of tape, you know, around. And he would ask John. He said, "How many?" Really, the tape, and John said, probably 400 and something. He goes, John. <laughs> and John was trying to justify it. He said, well, Bruce, you know you know what it takes, or like that. And, yeah. and Bruce literally said, John, you need some honest objectivity. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. But, you know, since then, I've worked with John, and uh, yeah. he seems a little more even-keeled about everything like that. I do know in the live respect of it, it's... It's still bizarre for the band members, you know, mm. from what I hear. Okay. Yeah. You know. It's it's interesting. I mean, he's such an I- iconic I artist, and uh, he's influenced so many people. Well, the thing about him is it's not like anything's degraded. He still sings and plays incredibly. Oh, oh yeah. Practices he's on the money. So it's not like we see somebody else who's trying to make something of, of what he used to be. Yeah. Yeah. So I do have to say I give him that. And, uh, you know, just for the rest of it, I mean, it, it's just a sad story of, mm-hmm. of what happened. And it's not unique. I mean, there are... There are oh, that happens, yes. It's unfortunate that that happens. It is unfortunate, yeah. you know, where you get somebody like that with that kind of power mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've seen it in some of our greatest artists where the label finally comes down and they go, uh, you, you, uh, now you need to do these songs. You need to like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Rebecca Lynn Howard, one of our greatest voices. Yeah, yeah. And I did one of her records. Right. And, and we were doing the song, and they said, no, 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 you need to do this. And just going, oh, my God. What a sad, that's sad. You know, that somebody like that has the power over unique creativity and individual capability yeah. of write, knowing what to write for yourself. Yeah. You know. But the greatest story I saw is I remember, because I did a lot of Vince Gill records, and I did one back when Emory Gordy produced him. Then I did one with Barry Beckett, yeah. his last efforts on uh, uh, RCA. Do you remember which one that was? Well, it never came out. Oh. So what happens is we get about seven or eight sides into it, but Galani tells Barry, don't, I don't want him recording any of his own songs. we got to record hits. He's got to have some hits. So... That went on and that went on, and, and finally, 
Vince will tell the story, even blatantly, where when he went to Barry, he said, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And Barry, F him. That's what he said. <laughs> so from that, he was off the label. We went in, we did the MCA effort that had When I Call Your Name and everything. Yeah, right? yeah. And, uh, of course, that just changed everything. There was an artist I worked with uh, who was on Warner Brothers, and um, we're flying to a gig, and she says, I'm really struggling right now. My manager wants me to cut a certain song. I want to cut this other song. Uh, The label wants me to cut this other third type of songs or this set of songs. I just don't know what to do. And I said, well, what if you just kind of did what the label wanted you to do and see where it goes. And she goes, I, I can't subscribe to that. If I do it on someone else's terms and I fail, then I'm always wondering what would have been. I would rather fail on my own terms. And I don't know, that was the first time I've, I've heard that oftentimes. I've heard yeah, that but see, times. the thing was, my objective with that would be, if you choose and you say you're choosing to do that, you won't fail on your own terms. They will fail you. They will not allow that to happen. They will negatively promote you. Yeah. I think that's maybe, maybe that was what I was thinking. It's like, but they have, yeah, they have the resources to help you become successful. So can you kind of, the more follow? frequency you get out of them, if you play their game and the more you get out there and have visibility and stuff like that, you can capitalize on that later down the road. Yeah, but if you go to a label and they want you to do this and management and all like that, as soon as you say no, I want to do this on my terms, they're going to go okay, and they will get together behind doors and they'll crush you. Mm. You won't even have a chance to see that what you chose to do come out because it won't. I know come what out. you're saying. And if it does come out, they will negatively promote it to the point of being able to say, "See." We yeah. told you because promotion has the power mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to go to all of their radio stations, everything like that, and not promote the record to them. Unbelievable. And this was her first effort. Yeah. Yeah, and she's. Not, and last. And last. With that, yeah. Yeah. Oh, You've got to look at the machine yeah. and be able to say, look, I will, I will, I will play this game. Strategy. Yeah. Let them fulfill everything that they want. Let them do it. Because the one thing about it, while they're putting everything into their belief, you are being seen. Mm-hmm. You're being heard. Mm-hmm. Whether it achieves top 10 or top 20, doesn't matter. But you have been heard. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you will have a life after that. Right. And then maybe the ability to... Then you can do what you want. Maybe another label after that doesn't work or anything like that might come in and go... Yeah, we really love your voice. We love what we see, and we want to take that on. Once you go against the hierarchy like that, it's over. Yeah. Because they have power at that time. Yeah. They have the power. Yeah, yeah. Just as much now as ever before, you think? No, I think because now that you have Scott Prochetta's and some of the other independent labels, even Scott suffered under that when he was A&R over at... uh, uh, with Luke Lewis and them mm-hmm. at MCA and uh, or Universal, whatever it was. 
and they were having adversity to him because he was, he knew his world, his father, Mike, everything. He inherited everything. He knew that world out there. Mm-hmm. He knew what to do, but even other people embedded in that label and everything couldn't take the fact that he was coming up with some objective about specific things that they were choosing to do. Mm-hmm. Just like if you were that person in there with that artist, be able to say, you know what, she already has this, this, this. So they fired him. Mm. And that's when he started Big Machine with Toby Keith. Mm-hmm. And because he knew what to do. And of course, the story that anybody knows and doesn't know was when uh, he signs Taylor Swift as a teenager and uh, then Toby drops out. So the money is gone for Scott to be able to fulfill the dream that he knows that he can make happen. With. And then, you know, Taylor's father was very, very wealthy in Merrill Lynch and put a little over a million dollars into that. And Scott was able to prove his worth. Right. And right. of course, now we see. Right. But that's the difference because Scott's one who knows like and thinks like we think. Yeah. You see, where the labels, unfortunately, now have inherited specific A&R companies that are more academically minded. Yeah. They know nothing of legacy. They know nothing except for the past five years of what they hear yeah. is what has made it up there. And so if they hear anything different, it'll scare them. Yeah. If they hear anything individual walk in the door. Yeah. They, oh, no, no, no. But can't they pull from Scott's experience and say, but look, look, I proved that it can be done. They can't because they don't have a biography. Hmm. That's what Delbert always told me. He has problems with people who don't have a biography. <laughs> so you got somebody who just got out of school and all they'd have is studied yeah. the past five years. So what else do they know? Yeah. There's nothing embedded in them to know that, my God, this is so individually incredible. We need to blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They, they don't have it. It's just not there. Yeah. You know? They they, mm. they need to really, either that or taking the initiative like we have mm-hmm. as musicians and drummers to be able to study back before time of our time and see why these efforts were so big. Mm-hmm. You know, because otherwise then anything that breaks out becomes a phenomenon. You know, any A in the part, we go, yeah, well, Adele was a phenomenon. You know, she just came in with her uniqueness and everything, and that just happened. But yet they'll stay on course with what they consider mainstream to be. Now, that's something that has opened up. In limited pressing world, the gates have opened so that if a production company has the power and the state of art studio... Yeah. Like over Beard Music, mm-hmm. it's incredible. I bet he has sessions going on three to five days a week, mm-hmm. you know. And you'll go in, and in two sessions, the goal is six songs a session. So somebody can come in and do their record. Plus, and they how get long is a session? You're, you're three hours. Six songs in yep. three hours. Yep. Wow. And you will see, oh, man. Who are some of the other people like like Greg's always in there with me? Greg Morrow, mm-hmm. Chad. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh man, who is well Tommy uh, Harden? Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, he frequents. He spreads the word. So I might have two days with him, you mm-hmm. know, one session each day, mm-hmm. and then he just spreads it out. He's done such an incredible job. But his state of art studios. These people will come from Texas for their bucket list or their pipe dream or whatever it is to be to have to do their record to say they did it in Nashville no just because where else are they going to be able to have 
great musicians mm -hmm. in that same room. Yeah. You know, because I'll be in there with Steve Nathan. I'll be in there with um, uh, James Mitchell, Brent Mason, mm -hmm. uh, JT, Cornfloss, uh, and on bass, you could either have Swine or Larry Paxton, Mike Brignardello. Mm -hmm. And most times it's Larry's son, Eli Beard, who's unbelievable. The guy's mm -hmm. crazy. But anyway, I'm just saying, the group of musicians in yeah. there. Yeah. And these people know that they can come here. Yeah. And what he gives them is their album will be done at the end of the day. And then they have three days of overdub and mix. Right. And they can have all this done, you know. Yeah. And they get their record. Yeah. So, again, somebody who all their life, that's all they ever wanted to do is maybe, maybe there was somebody put it on the back burner after they had family or after they have their work. Mm -hmm. And now they have the capability of coming out. Yeah. And doing a record. Yeah. And, of course, the other benefit is if somebody can come in on a demo session, you know, like James Slater or, or Victoria Shaw or something like that, and they need one song to pitch for next week, mm -hmm. they'll get that song done, and it'll be done. Right, right. Y'all are there. And they can pitch it right away. Right, exactly. That's Wow, that's awesome. Where before, it would take four or five others to get fiscally together, mm -hmm. you know, and justify having a studio musician's engineer mix and mm -hmm. everything everybody have to pool in this way right. for like seven hundred dollars the writer can come in get their time of 30 minutes mm -hmm. and go over to the next studio put their voices on and do whatever they want and, wow and it's just it's just that and it's amazing to see the expedition because what amazes me pretty much is 30 minutes allowed for each song and somebody could go wow six songs but you'd be surprised yeah what gets done within that 30 minutes of that track being done, guitar solos, overdubs, everything, and move on to the next song. Everybody's Everybody is together. so keen on being able to do it. Now, I have to say, you have to be ready for that. Right. You know? Yeah, right, exactly. But it's interesting that you say it's impressive to you. It to impresses me all the time because I can't believe, <laughs> That's you great. know, how quickly it goes. Yeah. But I love it because it's not only it's, it's brain power. Yeah, you sit. You know, you know, in three hours, you've got to do six pieces of music, and you have to rise them to that best potential. Yeah, it always happens. It amazes me. Purge the song before we did it. It's time to move yeah. on. Yeah, and the Clean other thing slate. is, is take it from nothing. Yes, you know, to getting it, and all the quick editing that's done within from all of us. You know, who said, "Hey, what if we just do this and this and this?" And it just gets done. Yeah. And and I've got many many efforts that I get after the fact, and it sounds competitive. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. So there's always a lot of that. Yeah. How far are you booked out? Uh, usually it's about, unless it's a fluke, two weeks. Okay. Everybody's pretty fast on, you know, not looking at you. I might have one thing next month that that has been booked. But I think everybody is so knowing now, again, that, that our rosters are so compatible mm -hmm. that they don't have to say I have to book this to get what I want mm -hmm. because then again they can get everything they want compatibly you know mm -hmm. that if I can't do it for when they call mm -hmm. and the other thing that's incredible is that I have to stay on top of this guy oh because right. I might get a you're text. pointing at your phone here yeah yeah I might get a text and they go are you open tomorrow at two o'clock yeah I mean it happens all the time yeah I remember in 92 or 93, with all of my connection with Winona, she needed a drummer mm -hmm. live. 
Mm -hmm. So we set up down at SIR Mm -hmm. and had an itinerary of people coming through. The thing that was a great awakening to me was to see all the different, they're all great drummers, but how they thought would be a translating of energy. Mm. And it was amazing. They would play the songs. You know, she wasn't there. She would just play with the band. Mm-hmm. But how they translated And I mean, I've never heard so many choplicks in all my life. <laughs> you know, just going, no, that, 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 that has nothing to do with the music. You know, but I was obviously going, yeah, that's really great. You can do that. But, you know, did you really listen to the song? Did you listen to the record? Mm-hmm. You know, and they would just do things that they thought was the impressive of even if I was there to show me that mm-hmm. that's energy, which it wasn't. Yeah. I think at the end of three days, this guy named Steve Potts comes in. Mm. Steve Potts was with Booker T. Oh, wow. And still is, I think, Booker T and the MGs. He came in and, man, just laid it down. I mean, just straight yeah. pocket, you know. Yeah. Nothing fancy and everything like that. Yeah. He gets, he gets a gig. Yeah. He was with it for a long time, you know. But it was, to me, and, and if you're put in that position, you would see what I'm saying. As I was going through your list of credits, I came across uh, records that you had played with artists that I've worked with over the years. And I know that that's, I'm not unique in that situation so many of us in the drumming community especially in nashville have learned your parts have you know learned the song from your performance and uh and i think it has influenced so many of us uh and i just kind of wonder how that feels like knowing that there's a lot of players downtown on tour wherever that uh are playing what you played and maybe some of what you've done, your style has influenced. Uh, it has influenced my style, my approach to oh, a song. So, um, I, I guess, on behalf of a lot of the players in town, appreciate you taking the time, talking to me, kind of giving us some insight. But. You know, I, I, that is appreciative, and and the great thing is, is to me, I've been such an advocate of being able to pass torches and being able to mentor and do a thing if there's anything mm-hmm. whether it's something i played on or whether it's something i could say or anything like that to be able to help that's that's right. that's my place now yeah that's what i feel yeah i'm still amazed that i work every week in the studio that's amazing after 42 years but i mean it's still something that if there's anything that i have done th- th- there's a lot of stuff locked up in all of us and if there's something from a question which you've been able to do that unlocks that, yeah, then that's great because, mm-hmm. and I would want that even openly if anybody wanted to contact me and because I've heard every scenario from people who have written me over the years and it involves not only just the musicality, but the personal life aspect of how they've gone through things in their life. Oh yeah. That could be inhibiting them in, in, specific areas and stuff like that even down to the point of where people have gotten in bands where unfortunately the guy who's in power in that band is doesn't know how to play out of pocket if you tried to get him to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and complaining about you mm-hmm. you know right, what i mean right right 
and and I've seen that happen. Yeah. And and for that, I have to be able to keep keep you strong to mm-hmm. be able to say, look, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyone else, if you put it before any of us, you say, man, the guy just rushes like crazy, and he doesn't feel, yeah. but yet he has the power to be able to blame it on you. Mm-hmm. You can't internalize that. Yeah. Yeah, all of the different outside influences as you go through life, family, kids, um, different types of gigs, different types of bosses (laughs) (laughs) that you have to overcome and get it together. And if this is what your calling is, if this, then you have to learn how to manage those everyday trials to deliver the best performance you can. That's it. For the situation. That's what you're called to do. Yeah, exactly. Eddie, I appreciate it so much, man. Damn, Thanks, man. It's been great. So there's uh, my interview with Eddie. Uh, I really appreciate him taking the time coming to my house uh, to talk about all these things, uh, many non-drum-related stuff. Um, hopefully, anybody that's interested in what goes on in the music business and recording and getting singles, maybe that just kind of open up a whole new world for uh, for you. Uh, I want to send out a special thank you to some of my friends that I reached out to before I sat down with Eddie. I wanted to be more than prepared. Uh, so thanks goes out to Lee Kelly, Mark Beckett, Josh Berkheimer, my friend Don Gatlin for giving me some ideas uh, on what to pitch towards Eddie. My thanks always uh, goes to Mike Jackson for his technical help. Stay tuned for Zach Albetta's interview next week. Um, And uh, again, um, thanks for everyone's uh, support, listening, uh, your input, your comments. Uh, Use the hashtag WorkingDrummer. We'll find you out there. Share your picture. Share your story. Um, Just appreciate the interaction and the listening and the support. So uh, keep on listening, and I hope to see you around. Thanks. Bye-bye.